0: Good day, listeners, this is your host, Michael Martins, with the Martins Critical Review, broadcasting today from another sunny and hot day here in West Kelowna, British Columbia. In today's program, we continue our series on the conservation of humanity, exploring the Wuhan flu, COVID-19 pandemic, and specifically exploring the mRNA vaccines, dissecting what they really are, their potential risks and side effects, and whether they provide any benefits to the individual taking them or to the population at large. We will also look at some highly effective and safe treatments for COVID-19 that are being suppressed by the mainstream narrative. I'd like to dedicate this important episode to Ted Kuntz and his late son, Joshua. Joining us today for this episode from the Lone Star State is the highly accredited Dr. Peter McCullough. Dr. McCullough is an internist, cardiologist, epidemiologist, and clinical professor of medicine at Texas A&M College of Medicine in Dallas, Texas. Dr. McCullough is an internationally recognized authority on the evaluation and practical application of medical evidence concerning contemporary issues in medicine, including the early treatment of COVID-19. Dr. McCullough, thank you so much for your time today. It's a tremendous honor to be able to speak with you. First off, I'd like to thank you for your tireless and courageous efforts to promote real science and evidence-based medicine in opposition to the endless mainstream narrative fear and that humanity's sole salvation is based upon an experimental vaccine.
1: Well, Michael, thanks so much for having me for the show. And, you know, I haven't taken a single day off since the onset of the pandemic and And I think fighting the virus was hard enough, but now fighting the the propaganda is just, it's it's an endless effort.
0: Yeah, it sure is. It sure is. And uh, Dr. McCullough, you've stated that you have a moral, clinical, ethical and human authority to pursue your work on early COVID-19 treatment and that you challenge anyone or any organization to dispute or find fault in your work or findings. Perhaps you could qualify that statement and elaborate on your lengthy list of credentials and experience within the medical field.
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to. As a as a practicing doctor and internist and cardiologist, I maintain my boards in both specialties. Um, I am considered the most published person in my field in the world in history, and that's the interface between heart and kidney disease. I had uh, really redirected all of my efforts towards COVID nineteen, and I have experience as an editor in chief of Cardiorenal Medicine of reviews and Cardiovascular Medicine. I'm the senior associate editor of the American Journal of Cardiology. I publish a A chapter in the Bible of cardiology called Braumwald's Textbook of Cardiology. Uh, When I had really um, uh, turned my attention to COVID-19, having chaired over two dozen data safety monitoring boards for clinical trials, 600 publications in the National Library of Medicine, I quickly uh, put forward 40 separate papers on COVID-19 and published an entire series of op-eds in the Hill as a window to America. I did assume the most authoritative role of anybody in the world on COVID-19. And not a single person has had the sufficient background, knowledge, or insight, nor has been correct on the pandemic to the extent that I have. And I'll be honest with you, I haven't been challenged.
0: Hmm. Well, that's that's great, other than uh, being ignored and ridiculed in the mainstream media, I guess.
1: Those detractors fall away very quickly. And I tell you what, they haven't stood a chance. Not a single one of them can find a single point that I've made That has turned out to be incorrect.
0: Interesting. Uh, And I'm also very interested in that, uh, the the link between the kidney and heart disease. And maybe once this pandemic is over, we can uh, uh, look to do an episode on that because that's a a very interesting subject. But at this point, we've got much more important things to deal with. Um, You've also stated that every single thing that has been done in public health in response to the pandemic has made it worse. Could you please illustrate some examples for the listeners?
1: You know, the um, the outspoken uh, business leader, Steve Kirsch, has put forward a $2 million reward. If anybody can find anything that our public health agencies have done correctly for COVID-19. And so I recently did a review on this with Sebastian Gorka on his uh, TV station and radio podcast. And I did give some favorable marks initially to the U.S. government on testing where we did uh, have rapid uh, private-public partnerships and bringing forward uh, appropriate PCR antigen and antibody testing. I think we actually did okay there. I think initially we did okay on the hospital responses. Our hospitals were given enough resources to manage. But you know outside of that, things really went bad. For testing, uh, the one uh, egregious uh, area was testing of asymptomatic people. None of the tests for COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2, were ever presented, studied, or approved for asymptomatic screening. So let's say individuals going across the Canadian border who have no symptoms. That's an unapproved use of a test. So unapproved use of tests are not sanctionable. They can't be supported by any authority. Uh, This has been done for the pro sports teams, the college sports teams, uh, government workers, all asymptomatic testing is not supportable and it's not even approved from a regulatory perspective. That's an example of things going wrong. Let me give you another example, which has been extraordinary and that is the global suppression of early treatment. So in a pandemic response, the first thing we wanna do is we wanna support all efforts to reduce hospitalization and death, all efforts. And so that means the use of drugs that have a signal of benefit and acceptable safety, as well as nutraceuticals. And it became widely and quickly known that uh, drugs, including uh, hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, Favipiravir, doxycycline, azithromycin, aspirin, simple available drug, colchicine, prednisone, inhaled budesonide, uh, low white heparin, anticoagulants. All of these have a role in combination and the suppression of this has been extraordinary, to the extent that some com- uh, countries actually stockpiled some of these drugs. Hydroxychloroquine was stockpiled in multiple countries and then restricted from use. Um, uh, other drugs, uh, uh, other countries, as an example, uh, took, took an over-the-counter drug like hydroxychloroquine or even in the United States, N-acetylcysteine, and then they made them prescription. So they actually worked to reduce the availability of simple drugs to treat this problem. There was suppression in the literature. Canada, Canada, the best trial in all of COVID-19 is called the Co-Corona trial. done at Montreal Heart Institute. Over 4,000 patients, prospective, double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial, 100% follow-up. Death and hospitalization is a primary employee. Colchicine, better than placebo. That paper was... Uh, uh, suppressed and delayed at New England Journal of Medicine, rejected the same thing at JAMA, the same thing at Lancet, finally published in a lower tier journal six months later. Uh, falsified papers published in uh, the New England Journal of Medicine and Lancet, the one on Lancet was particularly devastating to hydroxychloroquine. We had a falsified paper on ivermectin published in JAMA where there's been hundreds of responses to this. We've had malfeasance in the medical literature Uh, gross malfeasance with respect to the vaccine and we'll get into this, but just as a highlighted example, New England Journal of Medicine had a paper concerning the uh, ill-advised vaccination of pregnant women with the COVID-19 vaccines and they reported an acceptable fetal loss rate and what they did is they took all these women at different windows of time since no no woman had, had been through nine months of a pregnancy yet and they calculated by a large denominator and declared roughly a 12% rate of fetal loss, but any examiner who looked at it, women in the first trimester just divided by those vaccinated the first trimester had an 83% fetal loss rate. So these types of malfeasance in the literature where we are tired of just pounding these journals and pounding these editors and pounding these regulatory agencies for all the terrible steps that have done. It's not that they haven't done anything right it's almost as if they've done everything intentionally wrong to result in increased fear, suffering, hospitalization and death. That seems to be the final goal.
0: I mean, it's certainly with a, either a 12 or an 83% fetal loss rate, you would think that that product would be banned from circulation on that fact alone.
1: Well, 12% early in the first trimester is an acceptable rate of fetal loss and it's around, it's around 15% or so in the first trimester. Beyond 20 weeks, the rate of fetal loss should be way less than 1%. But to blow 83% in the first trimester and then 12% overall, a reasonable doctor would conclude absolutely positively not, uh, uh, no vaccination of pregnant women because it wasn't it wasn't tested in the original clinical trials. There's no testing on teratogenicity, mutagenicity. There's no testing on birth defects. We have no idea if these genetic vaccines would even put possibly remotely be safe, the last thing we would do is take a risk in a pregnant woman and a vulnerable infant who can't choose for themselves. That is immoral, unethically, and clinically, uh, from a liability and malpractice perspective, illegal.
0: Yeah, and so these the falsification of this data in these journals is that simply a, a misrepresentation of data, or is it a selective uh, use of the data? How, how have they reported these findings uh, to to show that uh, both ivermectin and HCQ was not uh, safe or effective?
1: the this, The systematic approach from editors appears to be of denying. Very large, high-quality studies, and never let them see the light of day, and let them go to very minor journals. An example is a very large study from Iran: twenty-nine thousand individuals, about a quarter of which are treated with hydroxychloroquine, multi-drug approach, appropriately in high risk, demonstrating reductions in hospitalization and death. That paper never sees the light at a major journal; it's delayed forever and published in a minor journal. And then a very low-quality study from in the hospital with no control over confounding would inappropriately conclude hydroxychloroquine is dangerous in treating um, COVID-19. So one came from a New York hospital, you know, 1,000 patients used in the hospital, no control over selection bias. And of course they're treating a sicker patient with hydroxychloroquine. They inappropriately conclude hydroxychloroquine is dangerous when it's just the opposite. That's interesting.
0: And I guess there's obviously a dose, uh, dosage issue there. I mean, the hydroxychloroquine, as I understand, as it approaches higher doses, do, does become a bit more difficult, uh, particularly in your kidneys, to eliminate. Is that correct?
1: No, I even think that was a misrepresentation. Hydroxychloroquine is cleared uh, by the liver and in part by the kidneys in terms of metabolites. And the bottom line is it has a range of doses. It's been used for systemic lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, malaria forever. I've used it in my hospitalized rheumatoid arthritis patients, lupus patients, we're safe in pregnancy. Uh, It's clearly got that uh, in all the medical literature. No, it works through a range of doses. It Basically, hydroxychloroquine was the first of many drugs attacked for the treatment of COVID-19. So it wasn't specific to hydroxychloroquine. It was anything that could treat COVID-19 and reduce the suffering and hospitalization and death has basically been attacked in the literature systematically in order to, in a sense, effectively take away that uh, compassionate care of patients who need it.
0: Interesting. So would it um, would it be correct then in making the statement that this entire COVID-19 situation has been contrived and led by an inappropriate diagnostic tool?
1: It has a great um, energy behind it with the the development of the PCR and then the misuse of the PCR. So I used uh, asymptomatic testing as an example. So uh, it depends from study to study, but some studies where the overall prevalence of COVID-19 is low, asymptomatic testing generates up to 90% false positives. That's actually the only thing it can do is give a false positive because at higher cycle thresholds what it does is pick up ambient RNA from other organisms and cells in the nose. Now, at a lower cycle thresholds, it, it gets a lower sensitivity, but a higher positive predictive value. I've always said at this day and age, we should be doing confirmatory testing. If someone has positive PCR in the nose, they should have an antigen test in the oropharynx and nose and confirm it. We do that for HIV. We're blowing so much money on testing. You know, in the United States, we have 330 million Americans. We've actually used somewhere between 400 and 500 million tests. This has been a gross overuse of the tests. Now, the other thing that's happened is that um, uh, when patients are hospitalized, they become what's called PUIs, persons under investigation. So they're held uh, uh, without much being done until they can establish their COVID status. So if they happen to have a false positive COVID test and they come in with a gallbladder attack, what have you, it's labeled as a COVID-19 hospitalization. So these false positives get reported to a uh, lab database through an executive order from Vice President Trump, and there's no control over duplicates. There's no control on different people's names. People's names going in with in, under different versions of their names, and it all works to inflate the case count. So our current estimates are whatever number we've seen is subtract forty percent.
0: Okay, and then on us on the cycle threshold, what is a useful cycle rate, and where does the cycle rate begin to yield these false positives?
1: So I think the appropriate cycle threshold now reset by the CDC, I believe, is twenty-four, no higher than twenty-four, maybe twenty-five. But once we get to 40, that we're just we're just uh, amplifying on an exponential rate, and we're just picking up ambient levels of RNA. So cycle thresholds that are very high, and one really ought to look at these studies very carefully to understand that um, tremendous numbers of false positives are being uh, generated. And let me say one other thing about uh, the the in in a sense, willful misconduct of uh, PCR testing is that uh, for all these mortalities, uh, if COVID-19 is positive at any course, the case is identified as a COVID death, even though COVID-19 may not have been in the causal pathway to death whatsoever. And so we know that those are falsified. Even our Center for Disease Control states that less than 10% of all the deaths is COVID-19, the proximate cause of death. Mm.
0: And there's also now additional strong evidence to support that statement, uh, as per the recent ruling by the Portuguese Supreme Court, which found that only 0.9% of the verified COVID-19 cases died, which brings it to about 152 people versus the 17,000 deaths as claimed by the government. Um, And so... When we see in these cycle rates in Canada, we're somewhere between 35 and 45 uh, still to this day. And so, you know, that will continue to prolong the fear and the misinformation quite easily.
1: Well, with a handful of cases in Australia right now, they've gone into strict lockdown back in many of their major cities. And I was on the U.S. national news last night on Fox News where they flashed up what's going on in Australia. And again, they're using a false narrative to try to drive uh, fear and the false narrative has to do with the Delta variant. The Delta variant has three mutations in the spike protein. It's it's, uh, far and away the weakest of all the strains of the virus as the virus gets progressively weaker and its mortality rate is astonishingly low. It's basically a case of the sniffles and they're using that to fuel more fear. So there seems to be no end to this agenda of making the problem look way bigger than what it is to try to justify unnecessary lockdowns and other draconian measures. And then when people do get sick, uh, to actually promote, which I think is the most important thing, promote as much fear, suffering, hospitalization, and and death. And so there's so many complicit entities, the governments, the government agencies, the pharmaceutical manufacturers, the laboratory testing, the travel industry, educational systems, um, uh, the physician groups, the hospitals, There's so many complicit agents that, you know, it almost seems like uh, there's only a few, a a, a small group of of truth-telling breakthrough heroes that are trying to save their countries and try to save the world.
0: Yeah. And, and this is situation in Australia is, I think, particularly dire because they lack a constitution. And uh, I'm not even certain that since this began sometime in March of last year, that they have allowed interstate travel uh, without a quarantine. So, you know, they, it's a very strange situation down there. Uh, like I said uh, before we got on air, I was doing some work down there uh, through 19 and early 20. And, uh, you know, the, the situation radically devolved into, you know, nothing short of chaos down there, uh, particularly in Victoria, the state of Victoria there, uh, things have been very bad. And uh, you know, I'm uh, saddened to hear that things are returning to that situation and potentially going to be even worse. And of course, the, the government down there has been talking about vaccine passports and mandatory vaccination and on and on. So it's a bad situation down there for sure.
1: Well, let me say that I was on Australian live TV this week on The Outsider's and there was a panel of um, questioners, and one of the media person. when well, the first thing he got out that he was uh, proud to take the uh, COVID-19 vaccine, um, but you know, I fairly presented vaccine safety data from the United States, which is absolutely terrible. The vaccine in no way can be considered safe, and uh, I could I could see the immediate uh, deflation of their enthusiasm for the vaccine, <laughs> and um, and I can tell you, it's their usual uh, process that they provide a link of the interview. And I had taken time to prepare for this and was set up for it and to be respectful. And I can tell you over the last four or five days, they're stonewalling me and stonewalling all of my advocates in Australia on a clip of a link on live TV. That goes to show you the bias. The bias is 100% against any early treatment, 100% against any freedom, all channeled, for the administration of a vaccine, and the vaccine stakeholders, they want a needle in every arm. This is a very important moniker for them, and they will go to no end to make sure that there's a needle in every arm. I think everybody should be alarmed. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, And you've said that a high percentage of the somewhere around 600,000 UF deaths could have been prevented with a multi-drug treatment uh, given early or to the midpoint of the disease. How large a percentage are we referring to here?
1: Well, I've estimated in the uh, U.S. Senate November 19th, I estimated 50% at that time based on what we had learned could have been uh, prevented, but now fully understanding where we are now with the present data and our telemedicine services and availability, the upgraded estimate on the March 10th testimony in the Texas Senate was 85% could have been prevented. But let me kind of lay this out for the audience. The United States is at about 600,000 deaths. We were projected by the CDC to be somewhere between 1.7 and 2.1 million deaths. We kept it off at 600,000 because we did have early treatment uh, kick through. We had US Senate testimony uh, where I was the lead uh, witness on November 19th and followed up by on December 10th, lead witness was Pierre Corey. We had a huge push to the American public. We organized four, uh, four national telemedicine services, 15 regional services, 350 doctors, and we broke through. Our government agencies failed. We're trying to suppress us, and we crushed our curve uh, in the early uh, January timeframe. And b- by early February, we only had one or two percent of Americans vaccinated, and our our curves were were, were right back down because we crushed the curve. We've seen that in Mexico City. We've seen that in states in South America. and We recently saw that in India. So we have a, a an unbelievable experience that early multi-drug treatment crushes the curve vaccination is gonna have no impact on the epidemic curves.
0: Hmm. It's interesting how, uh, you know, essentially a, a renegade group of doctors has saved the country uh, in direct opposition to the public health agencies that are well paid and well funded to do the same. So, I mean, obviously, congratulate you and your and your colleagues for your highly effective work. Um, but it's a sad situation to see that uh, it, it's taken this type of um, actions to to have saved uh, the Americans and, and people around the world.
1: Well, you know, it's historical. This has been going on since the end of time. When there's a worldwide crisis, an absolute uh, disaster, the ivory tower never pulls through. The ivory tower, do you know that that our major meca- academic medical institutions didn't save a single patient from hospitalization or death? Not a single one, they did nothing. They did absolutely nothing. They received patients if they had to for hospital admission, but they did nothing to relieve the suffering of patients at home. It was the hero doctors that kicked in. Um, you know, I was a leader. Pierre Corey was the leader. George Farid, Stella Emanuel, um, uh, Yvette Lozano. Many people get um, a credit. Uh, George, uh, uh, Brian Tyson in South Central California. We have a network really all over the United States. This is very similar to polio. The very first patient in the polio epidemic who got put on the iron lung by a hero doctor. That doctor got thrown off staff of hospital and humiliated. <sighs> this has gone on throughout history. And you know what? Americans should expect and Canadians should expect nothing less. You shouldn't expect your government to save you in the middle of the crisis. you got to look for heroes, people with courage, people with bravery in order to do it. You know, most of the early treating doctors the heroes I mentioned, we got the illness ourselves. Some, some of us ended up in the hospital.
0: Right. And I suppose, uh, Dr. Richard Bartlett from, from West Texas should also be thrown in there. Uh, I interviewed him early on in the situation and, uh, and he had some tremendous success with his protocol, um, which obviously has, I think the budesonide has been incorporated into your protocol as well. And so just, uh, I think we'll give him mention as well as one of those heroes at the front line.
1: Yeah. I'd like to give him special mention because he was so early on, Richard Bartlett was innovating. Um, and he's a hero doctor. He's a former military, um, veteran, emergency room doctor, and he was innovating with budesonide. And Richard Bartlett got on national, local and national TV and said, you know, inhaled steroids have a role. He was laughed out by academic institutions. They said he was a quack, he was a charlatan. And you know what? The British did a prospective randomized double-blind trial called uh, the STOIC trial and showed an 87% reduction in hospitalization with Richard Bartlett's approach. Every single time someone's been called a quack, or called the a charlatan, they've been proven in randomized trials and high-quality prospective studies to show that their approach worked. When myself and George Farid and Harvey Rich presented our approach to November 19th, we we were written up in an op-ed uh, by a um, academic doctor from Brown, stating that uh, ourselves with Senator Ron Johnson that we were snake oil salesmen of the of the Senate. Now, shamefully, the doctor who wrote that op-ed. Uh, was humiliated in the second hour of testimony when he was asked if he had ever treated a COVID-19 patient. He said, no, he's never even seen one. And he was called out as being a fraud. And people wrote his institution telling him to step out. To this day, he's still a media doctor on CNN. And shamefully, um, uh, he's out there basically promoting therapeutic nihilism and now dangerous vaccination.
0: Well, that doesn't surprise me if he's a, a, a supporter of CNN. I mean, that's essentially the, the criminal news network. Uh, that doesn't surprise me. And uh, you know, I'm glad that he's had a bit of backlash because clearly people like him aren't uh, aren't helping the rest of us. <clears throat> so these these early treatments, uh, these early interventions were obviously tightly linked to the development of this vaccine. Um, And is it true that without this suppression of these inexpensive and readily available treatment options, that the government would never have been able to legally grant this emergency use authorization for these vaccines, which have been rushed to market?
1: No, I don't think that's the case. Now, when I interviewed with Tucker Carlson in May, um, Tucker Carlson had a very strong reaction. He couldn't believe it when I told him that the suppression of early treatment was linked to the development of a vaccine. He said, well, how can that be the case? And I said, I think by design, early treatment was suppressed in order to promote fear and suffering uh, and prepare the population to psychologically accept a vaccine. I think that was basically it was a form of psychological conditioning on the population. And we this vaccine, as it became obviously propagandized and, in a sense, socially weaponized against the, the citizens of all countries. It became very clear. The EUA is a very thin regulatory uh, uh, device in a sense that was just used for market entry. And the indications for a vaccine are to prevent COVID-19 infection. And the indications for cheap treatments like hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin is actually for the treatment of COVID-19. So they're separate indications. And we know that to be the case because the Lilly uh, uh, antibody product, bamilivimab, was actually already on the market under EUA Uh, before the COVID-19 vaccines, and they were considered non-competitive. So uh, the EUA wasn't the reason for this. I think it was even more sinister. It was actually psychological um, uh, preparation. There was intentional uh, um, actions to make people suffer and see their loved ones suffer in order to scare people into accepting uh, an experimental vaccine.
0: That's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. There was, uh, I believe when I when I spoke with Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, he had mentioned that uh, at his Senate testimony, he had stated that, uh, you know, these cheap off patent uh, drugs should be looked at. And, you know, his feeling was that they're not because there simply wasn't a profit motive there from the pharmaceutical companies uh, to begin pr- to produce these en masse.
1: Well, that's true. Normally a sponsor does the uh, expensive large randomized trials. When I'm talking a randomized trial, we would need 20,000 patients as an outpatient. That's the size we would need. Now we do this in cardiology, it's not uncommon. So we've done large randomized trials, but despite having millions upon millions of COVID-19 patients and basically an unlimited budget, the US government did nothing. We only had a 2000 patient uh, trial of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin planned. And then sheepishly, uh, the National Institutes of Health National Allergy and Immunology Division stopped at 20 patients, indicating that they couldn't find patients with COVID-19. No one believed that. It was obvious that they were dropping all efforts on treatment in order to uh, promote ultimately railroad the vaccine on the population.
0: Interesting. Uh, and then based on the available VAERS data, by January 22nd, 2020, it seems that it was evident that these novel experimental vaccines were exhibiting an elevated level of mortality, which was greater than the mortality of all other vaccines combined. Uh, am I correct in that uh, data point?
1: That's true. I presented those findings to the Heritage Foundation in Washington and some key leaders that advised others. Um, that was just presented in the last two weeks, and I can tell you, I did not see that signal uh, prospectively. I only saw it in the retrospective scope. And uh, and in my practice, as the vaccines came out of the clinical trials, they looked reasonably effective. The safety profile was not adequately characterized, but we had to go for it. And about 70% of the patients in my practice, everyone over age 50 with medical problems, you know, there was appropriate vaccination. They underwent vaccination in December, January, and February, about 70% of my practice. But you're right, by January 22nd, the mortality had already exceeded the annual mortality that we see with all 70 vaccines, probably half a billion shots in the United States. So only at 27 million injections of the COVID-19 vaccine, already it appeared to, in some patients, be lethal. Now that we fast forward today, we have over 6,000 deaths. We know that 44% happened within 48 hours, so it's very tightly related to the vaccine. The vast majority of these people walk into vaccine centers, and within 48 hours, they're dead of the vaccine. And the deaths appear to be in three categories. In immediate allergic reaction, when they die in the vaccine centers, that's the reason why they have CPR equipment and patients have to be observed. There's another wave of deaths that occur in the first few days called reactogenic deaths, where patients die uh, devastatingly of heart attacks, strokes, heart inflammation, blood clots, fevers, chills, and simply the body is is uh, making far too much of the dangerous spike protein. It's obvious it's killing the patients. And then in about two weeks, there's a tail of deaths that's related to blood clots, low platelet counts, what's called vaccine-induced thrombocytopenic purpurea, VITT. So there's kind of three phases to the deadly wave that we're seeing. And that's in the United States, that's 6,000 deaths. That's through the roof. We never see more than typically 160 or so deaths per year, all the vaccines combined. So 6,000 is way out of line. We've had 21,000 hospitalizations. They have not even been characterized for the American public. Dr. Um, Jessica Rose from Canada has done some nice analyses and she's published this in the American Journal of Public Health and Policy. And what she's shown is that it's a blend. These hospitalizations are part due to cardiac reasons, neurologic reasons, including permanent neurologic injury, and then immunologic reasons. So it's a blend of what the vaccine is doing. In total, we have 387,000 safety reports. We're six months into this in the United States. There has not been a single safety briefing, Michael, not a single one. Can you imagine the largest mass vaccination program in human history, not a single press uh, press release on vaccine safety to the American public, and yet Americans every day are being asked or even forced into vaccination?
0: Yeah, I mean, what you're describing is sounds like carnage. I mean, the obviously, the, the people that do wind up suffering from uh, the COVID uh, reaction and, and as they progress that with the illness, I mean, that's a, 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 a bad prognosis for them as well. But, I mean, this this description that you've just provided here, I mean, especially with those numbers, and if we go backwards and, and look at how many of those 600,000 deaths in America were actually directly COVID-related, I mean, we could be coming on par here uh, from co- actual COVID deaths compared to vaccine deaths by the end of the year here?
1: Well, we have a published analysis in Vaccinology that's just come out in the last two weeks, and they estimate now that for every three potential lives that could be saved with a vaccine, and they don't assume any effect on early treatment, so we know this isn't the case. Is we, we, you know, that We treat the illness, we reduce mortality, but every three theoretical deaths that could happen, there are two vaccine deaths. So it's the worst trade-off of all time. Right now in the United States, we have about 6,000 new cases of COVID-19 per day. 40% of them are false positives. So we're only having to treat about 1,500 people in the United States today. We're having a small number of hospitalizations. We are getting over 2,100 safety reports per day. And there's a giant backlog. We have no idea where the end is on this. We have 45% of Americans vaccinated as of June 20th. We have 77% of Americans over age 65 vaccinated. The vast majority over 65 who have not been vaccinated, they can't take the vaccine. They have their COVID recovered. They have uh, cancers or immunologic or blood disorder problems or allergic reactions. So we're basically done. In the United States, we're done. The vaccine program is effectively over with. Uh, the vaccine center started emptying out uh, mid-April. They're empty. I go past the vaccine center in Dallas is empty every day. Not a single patient in the parking lot. And, and the vaccine stakeholders were worried about what's called vaccine hesitancy, that the Trusted News Initiative with BBC and all the major media, YouTube, Twitter, they've all vowed to do anything they can to suppress vaccine hesitancy. Well, the the biggest cause of vaccine hesitancy is an unsafe vaccine with terrible outcomes. And unless they address it, um, I can tell you right now, people aren't going for it.
0: Yeah. Well, and good for them. I mean, based on this information, I mean, that's just, uh, it's unbelievable. And, and of course, unfortunately here in Canada, uh, the government is still pushing hard. There's a lot of public service announcements. And, uh, of course, the, uh, and we'll get into it a little bit later. Uh, there's a real drive to get the children. And in this country now, uh, a 12 year old child can consent to receiving the vaccine without uh, parental consent, which I think is that's a criminal action. I mean, a 12 year old child has absolutely no ability, uh, you know, whether it's education or cognition to make this decision on their behalf. I mean, that's just uh, it's madness. And of course, a 12-year-old child has such a low risk of of contracting the virus or having any complications from the virus that it makes no sense to risk their health uh, with these experimental products.
1: Well, the best thing to do, and one of the reasons why I have not been challenged by anyone, is because I anchor everything in the data. So the Pfizer childhood vaccine study was published in the May 27th issue of the New England Journal of Medicine and they randomized 2,300 children in a two to one randomization scheme to the Pfizer vaccine versus placebo. The sum total of all that effort, Michael, is they produced uh, a protective effect or they uh, basically prevented about 18 cases of the sniffles. That's all they had. There were no serious cases, no hospitalizations, no family spread. The kids basically, the vaccine, all it did was we think prevent 18 cases of the sniffles it made 60 to 80% of the kids really sick on dose one or dose two. High fever, some fevers to 40 degrees. Mothers were scrambling in terms of giving uh, um, a Tylenol or other drugs, a large percentage, 20, 30% of the kids had to be taken out of school. The the vaccine trial was a complete bust. It was obvious that the downsides of the vaccine far outweighed the benefits. And, and shockingly, the authors conclude, uh, safe and effective for vaccinations. Shockingly, the US FDA on February 10th, before those results are even known, actually gave the emergency use authorization for ages 12 to 15 without even having the safety data. They just approved it based off the antibody data and active malfeasance. Now it becomes clear that um, uh, the vaccines uh, clearly uh, didn't do anything clinically in the clinical trials and were unsafe in the clinical trials. And we get this uh, emergence in the literature. Just last week, our Center for Disease Control had a two-day emergency set of meetings because the vaccine, which they're all genetic vaccines in the United States, they give a payload of genetic material to organs. Then the organs produce the dangerous spike protein, which damages the organs. And uh, alarmingly, the heart and the brain are the ones most damaged. The hearts get damaged, particularly in children, but it probably happens in all age groups to some extent, and it results in chest pain, EKG changes, positive troponins, evidence of heart failure, reduced left ventricular function. Uh, The kids are damaged. Ninety percent of them are hospitalized. I've seen them in follow-up. Now they're on heart failure medications. They have to have restrictions in activities. They have to be on these drugs for three to six months, repeat labs and imaging is absolutely a tragedy that any parent or any young adult would ever undergo vaccination. And I've clearly told Americans no vaccination for anyone under age 30, period, period. There's no evidence of benefit and there's clear evidence of harm. Now the myocarditis safety, war- safety la- uh, language just came out on Pfizer and Moderna. We had already had safety warnings on the Johnson and Johnson vaccine for central cavernous venous thrombosis in young women uh, ages 18 to 48. So there's no safe vaccine for anybody young. And the same is true in Canada for your AstraZeneca vaccine. There's no safe harbor right now, I think until we get to the Novavax vaccine. When we get to Novavax, now we're talking, that's an antigen-based vaccine. Uh, The safety profile is much better. It looks every bit as effective as Pfizer or Moderna. It's not a genetic vaccine. So I say Canadians, wait for Novavax.
0: Yeah, well, the 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 message that we get in Canada, which comes directly out of our uh, foul prime minister's mouth, is uh, the correct vaccine for you to take is whatever you're offered first. I mean, which is a absolute disrespectful statement to every Canadian uh, that is in this country. Uh, so, Dr. McCullough, as somebody who has chaired over two dozen vaccine safety monitoring boards for the FDA and the National Institute of Health, can you give a letter grade for the rollout of these new vaccines?
1: Well, you know, I've chaired over two dozen uh, day safety and monitoring boards, not for vaccines, although I have chaired for injectable products, including interleukins, for uh, oral products for diabetes, as well as devices, both in vitro diagnostic and therapeutic devices. So I have probably as much experience with new product uh, safety than anybody, I think, who's opined on this at all. I'd give all the regulatory agencies an F on this. F. They fail grossly. So Uh, when the trials came, when the uh, products came out of the trials for EUA, they should have been strictly uh, 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 restricted to only those studied in the clinical trials. So that means no one should have received the vaccine if they were pregnant, they were women of childbearing potential, those who were COVID recovered, suspected COVID recovered, or had positive antibodies. They should have never received a single injection of the vaccine once it rolled out in the program. That was an act of regulatory malfeasance. It should never happen. That's like having a brand new drug that was never been tested and just give it a whirl in a pregnant woman for the heck of it. We never do that, never. It's absolutely against every single regulatory um, uh, statute and, and principle that we have. It's complete and total malfeasance and everybody involved Everybody involved, even people sitting there at the vaccine center should have known pregnant women were not included in the clinical trial and they never should have gotten out a needle and got anywhere close to a pregnant woman, period. I'll give you another example of malfeasance. The vaccines are under clinical investigation. All clinical investigations must have an independent, unbiased, separate critical event committee, data safety monitoring board, and human th- ethics board. They must have these. This is according to the Nuremberg Code, the Belmont uh, principles, the uh, principles that we use for the Office of Human Research Protections in the United States. They must have these bodies and these bodies must meet on a periodic basis. They must review safety and they must report back to the sponsors to make the program safer. So the sponsors in the United States are the FDA, the National Institutes of Health, the Centers for Disease Control, and then Pfizer, Moderna, J&J. In Canada, you would add in AstraZeneca. Those are the sponsors. In fact, the sponsors cannot review safety data and interpret it. So in the United States, another act of malfeasance is the CDC and FDA stated in March and then in May that they reviewed the deaths and none of the deaths were due to the vaccine. Well, they can't do that. They're the ones who actually are the sponsors of the study. Of course they would think that, and they couldn't have done a thorough review. We need experts. We have two independent reviewers. We have to review all the hospital records, the laboratory records. Then we have to grade it on the level of causality. When this has been done appropriately, which it has been done in Denmark, in nursing home patients, the vaccine is related to the death. So when it's done with two separate reviewers, in many circumstances, the vaccine is the direct cause of death. I think in virtually all the cases that occur within a few days of injection, I think virtually all of those, the vaccine is in the causal pathway of death. For example, the patient may have died of an allergic reaction, but it was due to the vaccine. The patient may have died of a provoked heart attack or stroke or a blood clot, but it was due to the vaccine. Or they may have died of a neurologic uh, injury and then aspirated and died in the hospital, but it's due to the vaccine. Meaning, if the patients would have just not taken the vaccine, they'd be alive today.
0: Yeah, it's interesting how there's this this reverse uh, strategy that the agencies are using because uh, the COVID deaths, you know, people fell off a ladder or died in a car accident and they had a positive PCR test while they died from COVID. Yet when we look at it from the other direction, n- the fingers are never pointed at the vaccine, which is, you know, as you've eloquently stated here, just makes no sense.
1: Well, there's two double standards that's quite interesting. One is what you just mentioned is that When they die of the vaccine, they say, well, it can never be due to the vaccine, but when they die and they happen to have a positive COVID test, the the death is always due to COVID. The other double standard that exists is that uh, for uh, community acquired COVID, everything counts. So the idea is the community test, the false positives, the hospitalizations count. For breakthrough infections for COVID-19 people who are fully vaccinated. Our Center for Disease Control was so overwhelmed with breakthrough cases. They had over 10,000 cases um, reported to them. And it's not that they looked for it. They just poured in that they gave up on reporting breakthrough cases at the end of May and said, listen, we're not going to even report breakthrough cases in the community. We're just going to report the hospitalizations. So now it's a double standard. So for those unvaccinated, they get a full reporting of community and hospitalized cases, but vaccinated is just the hospital cases. So we know that there's an enormous uh, double standard. Everything we've talked about, beyond a doubt, is all organized to propagandize and socially weaponize the vaccine to make sure there's a needle in every arm at all costs without any regard to patient safety, without any regard to benefit. In fact, this entire vaccination program is all leading to human harm.
0: Yes, and then was there ever really a need to uh, bring these experimental vaccines uh, into the public realm based on where we were in the progress of this virus um, with the natural level of herd immunity that must have already been in place?
1: Well, we knew from the registrational trials that vaccines were going to have no impact. So in the registrational trials, the absolute risk reduction was less than 1%. That meant that those who got the uh, vaccine or got placebo, the chances of ever getting COVID is less than 1%. So if, if people walking around, if their chance of coming in contact with COVID and contracting is less than 1%, no intervention is gonna do anything. So whether people got the vaccine or not, it didn't matter because it can't possibly influence the population. The only thing that ever really mattered was treating COVID-19 early at home to prevent hospitalization and death. And now that we see things play out with a Delta variant, the Delta variant may have come about because of uh, indiscriminate vaccination and the Delta variant is laughing at the vaccine. It, in, it infects people with an equal probability to that of the vaccine. In the UK variant report, June 18th, 42% of all Delta variant infections are in fully vaccinated people. And then in Lancet paper from Shake, in June 14th of this year, they reported that 30% of the Delta cases were in fully vaccinated and they had a gradient of unvaccinated, partially vaccinated, fully vaccinated, and there was no p-value for interaction, meaning the vaccine has no efficacy against the Delta variant. It's a waste of time. And uh, and uh, uh, right now the fear mongers are trying to use the Delta variant and scare people into getting the vaccine, which doesn't work against the Delta variant.
0: Yes. Yes, and and of course, the WHO has just stated now that uh, vaccine recipients will still be required to wear masks and physically distance, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so it sounds like the vaccines have essentially failed in their objective to curb the the spread of this virus.
1: Yeah, the vaccines have completely failed, and there are some theoretical concerns. I'm not sure they've been borne out yet that the vaccines would make things worse. So the vaccine program was completely and ineptly. Uh, Rolled out. Uh, If a vaccine was effective and if it was reasonably safe, it still should have been restricted to just seniors, probably those over age 65, multiple medical problems. It should have been carefully done. I estimate in the United States, somewhere maybe between 5 and 15 million should have been vaccinated, maybe 20 million at the most. That should have been it for the vaccine program. That should have been it. And we would have curbed safety. We wouldn't have so many of these thousands of deaths these needless vaccine deaths, needless hospitalizations. Americans and Canadians are suffering greatly at the hands of their government agencies and regulators right now with some really bad biotechnology from the biotech companies.
0: Yeah. And I mean, certainly there there definitely seems to be a profit motive here. And if as you suggest, if we had looked to vaccinate uh, 15 to 20 million Americans, that wouldn't have had the same profit center that uh, the massive number of vaccinations that have been administered uh, would have uh, provided those companies.
1: Well, it's interesting, you know, the vaccines are all pre-purchased by these agreements. So if you notice, uh, you don't get any sense that Pfizer Moderna's Moderna is pushing this at all. Uh, they've already made their money. So the people who are really pushing the vaccines are the government agencies, and, and it's really wrong because they're not doing fair balance. You know, a pharmaceutical company would be um, required to prevent to present the benefits and the risks of the product right now because the government agencies are pushing this under the EUA. They are not presenting uh, any of the downsides to the vaccines, and so they have these commercials. You know, with two parents. Putting their, their their hands on the shoulders of a kid, and saying you should get the vaccine. This is for you. And Americans don't buy it. They see kids dying. They see kids getting myocarditis, being hospitalized. And Americans are not buying it. They know the government is basically uh, presenting a false uh, uh, case to them.
0: Well, it's, it sounds like the Americans are smarter than the Canadians, because uh, around these parts, we're, we've we got uh, a lot of peer pressure amongst the the younger people in terms of who has had the vaccine and who hasn't. And there's definitely some uh, pretty strong social pressures amongst the, the younger people in terms of, you know, get your vaccine or, you know, I can't associate with you and this type of thing, which obviously is ludicrous and madness. But uh, that's where we're at.
1: Well, they're taking extraordinary risk. And I tell you, I'm really worried about the young women. Remember, I told you pregnant women and women of childbearing age were excluded from the clinical trials, specifically by the vaccine companies and by the US FDA and by the Human Ethics Board. They knew there was a problem in giving the vaccine to pregnant women or women who could become pregnant later on. And this is what turned out to happen in the Moderna uh, emergency use authorization uh, presentation to the European Medical Agency. They were required to produce a fertility study. And they did. And the Moderna vaccine reduced fertility in animals. Now, it wasn't to the level where the vaccine would be killed from development, but it was a significant drop in fertility. And then the Japanese required Pfizer to produce a biodistribution study in animals. And they used the lipid nanoparticles. And it clearly showed that lipid nanoparticles concentrate in the ovaries as we expected they would. There were prior studies showing that lipid nanoparticles specifically. Uh, uh, localized in the ovaries, which require the lipid to produce the steroid hormones, the sex hormones. So we knew, we knew from the very beginning that the nanoparticles concentrate in the ovaries, and the Japanese biodistribution study clearly showed it. As they washed out of all the other organs, they concentrate in the organs. So what happens when these lipid particles concentrate in the ovaries? They concentrate in a layer called the corpus luteum, and then they they deposit their payload. Their payload is messenger RNA, which then starts to produce the dangerous spike protein. This is the gain-of-function spike protein that was produced from basically illegal research, partly funded by the U.S. National Institute of um, uh, uh, Allergy and Infection, and uh, to the Chinese lab. And I think they were getting intellectual property help from the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. But this spike protein is pure danger to the human body. That's what's being produced in the ovaries of these childbearing women or childbearing age women, young women. And the spike protein we know damages the cells. It damages the blood vessels around the cells. It causes inflammation. And that inflammation then destroys more cells, ultimately causes fibrosis. That spike protein circulates elsewhere in the body. And I can tell you that that women immediately were reporting changes with their periods after the vaccine, which is very disturbing. And I think now, if you put the Moderna EMA application together from and the and the Japanese biodistribution study and what we know about the mechanism of action, I think there's a high likelihood that ill-advised, uh, 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 basically uh, 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 accepted, vaccination of women under age 30, childbearing age women, is going to lead to decreased fertility. I think the chances of that happening are extraordinarily high. And it's an absolute tragedy. It's a tragedy that our governments and agencies ever put this out there. It's a tragedy that the vaccine manufacturers ever made such a dangerous vaccine. And it's even more of a tragedy that young women are blindly signing up for the vaccine and accepting it because they want to travel or they want to go to school. That is absolutely the lightest, weakest reason to threaten uh, fertility. And it should be carefully thought of that, um, you know, a threat of a vaccine passport's no reason to destroy fertility for the rest of one's life. And I think there's a reasonable chance that fertility is going to be impaired, more than reasonable chance with the, these reasons that A, uh, it reduces fertility already in animals, the MRA vaccines are localized in the ovaries, we don't know about the adenoviral vaccines, and we know they dump a dangerous payload right into these precious organs. Mm. I mean, it's certainly
0: looking like uh, there could be some other ulterior motives here in terms of uh, global depopulation. Uh, you know, clearly the makers must have had some suspicion about the, the potentiality of these products. And, uh, you know, God help us if uh, we do see a, a massive decline in fertility rates. I mean, this could be a, a major event in the history of humanity.
1: Well, you, you know, whether there's some glow, uh, grand design, it'd be hard to imagine that that all of these manufacturers were so carefully interdigitating because they're using a bunch of different technologies, you know, messenger RNA technology, now adenoviral DNA technology, and then soon antigen technology. It's hard to believe that they're that coordinated. Um, it, there looks like there's an enormous amount of ineptitude, incompetence. So, for instance, you know, not having a day safety monitoring board, not having uh, an expert advisory panel, not having a human ethics panel. Uh, it, it looks like they they got so many things wrong. Uh, probably wrong dose. Uh, clearly wrong technology they were using what's basically gene delivery technology. So everybody who is involved in the development of these technologies, you know, the first idea on this was published in 1987. They've been around forever. They've been failed technologies in all these different disease categories to kind of kind of whip it up into a vaccine was the most ill-conceived. And there were so many people involved in this ill-conceived idea. From the very beginning, if you would have asked me back in March, would have presented me the idea that we're going to take some failed genetic technology platforms and kind of repurpose them into a whip-it-up vaccine and then basically force this on the population with no safety control, I'd say you're nuts. And they are. Yeah,
0: I mean, it's, it's either complete incompetence or greed or there's something else going on there. I mean, it's, it's just such a... Uh... The dereliction of of duty and malfeasance, there's no other way to look at it.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. Malfeasance is a good word. Is is wrongdoing by those in position of authority. Another word that really fits is propaganda. Now propaganda brings us right back to World War Two, but is propaganda when a false narrative is promoted in order to ultimately do harm in a population. So there's many of these propagandize false narratives. I'll give you one. How about that you can get COVID over and over again? You can get reinfected over and over again. Complete false narrative. It's never happened. There hasn't been a single bona fide case of reinfection that's been confirmed with multiple testing. Not a single one. And that false narrative has been used to basically promulgate vaccination on people who are already immune, who have no opportunity to benefit. So why would the stakeholders, if they really cared about reducing COVID-19, why would they wanna vaccinate people who are already immune and even waste any vials of the vaccine, let alone subject people to safety concerns? And that's exactly what happened. We know from three studies, uh, two in the UK and one from uh, New York, that vaccinating people who are already immune just causes more side effects, no benefit. We know from the Cleveland Clinic, even if you're exposed to COVID-19 and you have natural immunity, you can't get COVID-19. And uh, ridiculously in the Cleveland Clinic study, Half of those who are COVID 19 recovered had already taken the vaccine. So we estimate that probably a quarter of everybody taking the vaccine is already immune to begin with. So the vaccine can't possibly have an impact. And so chances are the only vaccinated people who are really not at risk for getting COVID are those who are already immune. They didn't need the vaccine to begin with. That's what we're finding out with the UK Delta variant studies. It's really those who are just COVID immune to begin with, it has nothing to do with the vaccines.
0: Nah. Interesting, interesting. And so how is the vaccine-derived immunity different from the immunity which would be obtained from a a natural infection and recovery from the virus?
1: Well, it's really substantial. With the natural infection, uh, the entire ball of the virus, the nuclear capsid, the spike proteins on the surface, the enzymes, the RNA-dependent polymerase uh, is, and the other uh, enzymes, they all... Uh, a subject, subject the body and, and create the body's ability to form immunity. So, we do get a nice library of antibodies against the spike protein and the nucleocapsid. We probably get thousands of antibodies, uh, both IgG, IgM, and IgA because the virus comes through the uh, respiratory tract. We also get very deep T-cell immunity. There's thought to be over a thousand changes that happened in T-cells, including epigenetic changes in chromosomes in order to express cell surface receptors. Actually, that's the basis of the T-detect test. Um, So we know probably a thousand or more changes. There's natural killer cells that are ready to attack the virus, T helper cells, T uh, um, uh, antigen presenting cells. And then very importantly, we have the plasma cells or the B cells. And even when there's no antibodies, because the antibodies always burn out in everybody if they're not re-exposed, there's been studies in the bone marrow to suggest that In fact, the plasma cells are ready. The very first virus that's presented, you'll start to produce antibodies again and respond. So the natural immunity is robust, complete and durable. There's never been a credible case of a second infection, never. If anybody thinks they found a case, show it to me because there's always misinterpretation of one PCR in one time or another. So it is complete, durable and robust. It's airtight. Now with the vaccine immunity, it's just presenting the spike protein and just the original Wuhan wild type protein. Now the, now that's actually a more dangerous spike protein. So I have to tell you so the Wuhan it was that's the reason why it was so devastating in Milan, so devastating in New York, Detroit, New Jersey. It's much milder now. The the the, the virus is burning out. It's much milder now. Remember how they were saying Toronto is going to be clobbered? You remember all this? I I know it very well. Toronto none of the other cities were overwhelmed because the virus is getting so mild now. But um the point is Uh, people who are vaccinated are vaccinated against the Wuhan uh, wild type. It's probably a library of probably about 50 antibodies, and it's very narrow. And it obviously doesn't cover the Delta variant whatsoever. It probably does cover the UK, British, and Brazilian variants. That's actually been sufficiently shown. At least Pfizer and Moderna Mm -hmm. drew pretty well.
0: Mm, That's interesting. And of course, as the the virus evolves and mutates, you know, virus's objective is not to kill the host, it's simply to replicate its genetic material. And so it's probably entered that stage where it is less uh, harmful, but it's, you know, as the Delta variant is claimed that it spreads more rapidly. Uh, But, you know, really, who cares if it gives you the sniffles and moves on and and you don't experience any uh, downside from it?
1: Sure. We get coronaviruses every year. We get four to eight colds a year. So You know, we're just in the business of getting colds and we get through it. So you and I will probably have a couple more coronaviruses this year. And it doesn't matter if it's COVID now or not. It's It's like the common cold. What you mentioned is an important principle called Mueller's ratchet. So Mueller's ratchet is when the virus is mutating and we're burning out. So we're clearly burning out in this pandemic. And the virus gets to an evolutionary bottleneck where it's like, listen, it can't do much. India was a great example. India had great early treatment. They were suppressing, suppressing, suppressing. The virus had nowhere to go. And then it triple mutated into what's called the Delta variant or the Indian variant. And so it has three mutations instead of one. And then another conformational change. And that allowed it to live. Now, it did live in India, but they quickly learned that they can squash it with early treatment. So Delta is the least dangerous and most treatable of all the variants. No reason for a lockdown. No reason to get vaccinated anymore because the Delta doesn't even... Uh, uh, you know, get influenced at all by the vaccine. We simply now just to treat our way through it, we'll be fine. Mm, that's good.
0: Uh, so, you know, question for you here, you know, how how could you ascertain whether or not you were infected by COVID-19? And obviously, then if you have been, you have this robust antibody pool. And th- the question really is, is perhaps one that would lead to a legal argument uh, for Canadians here that are going to be forced by our draconian leadership into some form of a vaccine passport, uh, or your, your abilities are going to, your abilities to travel within the country, attend sporting events or whatever, can be greatly curtailed. Um, and I believe that there may be a legal argument there, a legal challenge, uh, based on the available research. Uh, how would somebody then prove that you've had the infection and are, are essentially not a risk to be reinfected or to reinfect anyone else?
1: Well, the best proof is just documentation of the clinical infection. So I always tell patients, if you've had COVID, get a copy of your positive COVID test result, you know, and the fact that you were clinically sick, you know, had a fever, nasal congestion, cough, and what have you. Just the clinical diagnosis is good enough. And we know that when someone recovers from that, their immunity is complete and durable. That's all one needs. So last year, I have to tell you, Canada blew it by having the NHL playoffs, and they didn't allow any fans in. I watched every bit of it because the Dallas Stars went all the way to the Stanley Cup, and that was a huge waste. They should have filled up the venues every night with COVID-recovered patients, just people who had a history of COVID, well-documented. They could have been shoulder to shoulder, drinking some Labatt's beer up there in Canada, and cheering for the Dallas Stars, even though we didn't win in the end. It was a good run. We just, we got too tired at the end. But the bottom line is it was a giant blunder by the Canadians and Americans were no better. The Super Bowl down in Tampa Bay, Tom Brady coming back after being with the Patriots. Now it's with the Bucs. He leads the Bucs all the way. I mean, come on, who wouldn't want to watch that? And they could have filled up the entire uh, stadium with COVID recovery patients. Instead, they let 100 vaccinated healthcare workers who looked about as scared. They were shaking like leaves. to to get scattered around the stadium to go watch the game. So our public health officials and our leaders are absolutely blowing it. They could have made money. They could have been great for Canada and the United States, two two, landmark, iconic things that our countries do, completely blew it. So COVID recovered is solid enough. Now, if someone is not sure and they didn't get the original PCR test, but they think they had COVID, Now that's where testing plays a role. So the high-quality antibody studies that are offered in your lab, so it would be Quest, LabCorp, Covance, Orthoclinical Diagnostics, Abbott, Roche, those antibody tests meet a high standard. Anybody who's positive on those antibodies is immune, period. Period. You don't need to do anything else. Now, if you don't have antibodies on those, and it's still a question, you can do what's called the T-detect test, T-detect. Detect, you go online to tdetect.com and you sign up, go through the process, their laboratory director approves it, and then you can go to any lab corp office, get the blood drawn. They draw two tubes of blood, they'll extract the DNA, and then they'll tell you if you've actually had COVID-19 by looking at epigenetic changes in the T cell chromosomes. It's a very uh-huh. good test because it's permanent, it's permanent. Don't forget the antibodies wash out in everybody. Even people vaccinated, the antibodies are gone uh, within several months. So the T detect is a really good thing if you don't have positive antibodies. Mm.
0: That's that's interesting. I'm going to explore that option and uh, present that information uh, next time I travel to the uh, the Gestapo at the airport, and uh, uh, if, you know there'll be some more evidence to take to court uh, to fight the fines. That's uh, that's great information. Well,
1: I, uh, I, I, I have- I have, I have my positive PCR and antigen tests when I had it. I have my PCR test showing that I cleared it. I have my antibody test. Oh, and I didn't tell you, Michael, you know what I did is I donated blood at a church blood drive. They always screen the blood for COVID-19 to see if you can actually have convalescent plasma. They use, in the United States, they use the orthoclinical diagnostics. That's a little easier one to hit. I had antibodies on that, and I did the T-cell uh, detect test anyway. And I keep that in my travel sachet. And anybody who wants to shake me down about having COVID, so I I'm immune. I can't give it and I can't receive it. And it can't be improved upon by a vaccine. And we have to kick butt at the border. We have to kick butt with anybody who's trying to illegally influence us whatsoever based on science. And just build your own portfolio and carry it with you.
0: Yeah, that, that's excellent yeah. advice. Uh, and something that I that I'd like to understand more fully because I've got some in my mind I'll have some questions on it. The, the concept of this antibody dependent immune enhancement, uh, which occurs potentially when an individual is exposed to the wild virus post vaccination, can, can you run me through that, please?
1: Antibody dependent enhancement is when uh, the antibodies, typically immature antibodies that aren't exactly organized to neutralize the virus could by mistake actually enhance the virus entry into the body. It's a theory, many immunologists are worried about it, that ADE is going to, you know, have a new strain just knock us out. I, I have to be honest with you, I'm not an immunologist or virologist, but I'm pretty strong in medicine, and I don't see any evidence of antibody-dependent enhancement despite those concerns except after the first injection of the messenger RNA. So I hope everybody knows this, whether you take Pfizer, Moderna you're at increased risk of getting COVID in the first two weeks before the second shot. Increased risk. And that is due to antibody dependent enhancement because some very early immature antibodies make it more likely that if you come in contact with a COVID virus that you'll convert to full-blown COVID. So getting the vaccine is a little risky in that first two weeks after the first shot, and then the risk goes away after the second shot.
0: Mm. And so is that the the, the pathogenic priming phenomenon that we saw in the mRNA um, animal studies previously? Is that the same thing or is that a different...
1: uh... Pathogenic priming is this idea, um, as I understand it, that you have circulating spike protein and the spike protein kind of damages the endothelial cells and kind of opens up the door for more viruses to come in. Now, that's certainly possible. I mean, we also do have circulating spike protein in the first injection of the messenger RNA. But um, suffice it to say people have used these concepts to say that the vaccine could backfire. And so far, the only evidence the vaccine is backfiring is this in this risk after the first shot, which was shown in the Pfizer studies in the Pfizer briefing booklet. It's been shown in France and Israel that clearly after the first shot, you're at increased risk, you know, small risk, it's not big. And the other way the vaccine is backfiring is obviously the vaccines aren't safe. And so people are dying and being hospitalized afterwards. And then now with the UK experience that it's not antibody dependent, I just don't think they work against the Delta virus. I think the Delta virus just scooting past the vaccine. Right. Okay. And then why are
0: we seeing a rises in both cases and illnesses in vaccinated populations? And, you know, the examples here would be the, the island nation of the Seychelles. Uh, we just had that cruise liner with uh, fully vaccinated patients. Uh, any thoughts there?
1: I'm not sure it's rises in cases. It's just that when you have, you know, a very high proportion of the population vaccinated, let's say Seychelles, then there's, what do you have? I mean, the only cases of COVID you're going to have are those who are fully vaccinated. It's the same thing in the Edinburgh study and in the UK. It's just a proportionality thing. If you look overall, cases are way down overall. And uh, that, uh, you know, it's just simply, if you have 70% of the population vaccinated and you're going to have proportionally a higher number of people vaccinated who account for the COVID-19, and that, in fact, they will indeed, some of them will die, be relatively few. So the example is, right now, you could make the claim from the June 18th UK variant report that those vaccinated have a higher mortality rate. And it's true. It is slightly higher than the unvaccinated, but it's insignificant. So. Okay. Okay, okay. And uh,
0: here in Canada, our Communist Broadcasting Corporation has reported that unvaccinated Canadians are a tinderbox that threatens Canada more than variants. Uh, Is there any validity to that statement, or is this just more uh, weaponized propaganda?
1: I think it's weaponized propaganda. Canada does have. A lot of susceptible individuals, but the virus is so weak at this time. You know, we fully expect that the Delta variant will take over all the other variants. I was amazed in the UK how it became 98% of the variants. So somehow Delta seems to outcompete the others. And if that happens in Canada, that's good news because, you know, if you get it, it's going to be like the common cold and it's very easily treatable.
0: Very good. And lastly, in this segment, I'd like to address the censorship, threats, and sanctioning which has occurred towards medical professionals uh, worldwide uh, at the hands of their governing colleges. Uh, and This is truly a shameful situation where only the public suffers. Uh, your thoughts on this?
1: Yes. Um, you know, I have to tell you that uh, uh, this issue of censorship, um, I, I don't think it's an attack Uh, directly on doctors uh, or on scientists against us personally. But I think the censorship was all designed to promote suffering, hospitalization and death in order to promote mass vaccination. So the only reason why anybody was ever censored was to achieve the goal of mass vaccination. And so one has to carefully examine, why would one want to censor to promote mass vaccination particularly if it's not safe and it's not working well, why would one want to do that
0: yeah and certainly this this goal of max max vaccination and you know the, the potential uh fertility issues i mean it really just it, it begs the question you know what is the agenda here
1: no one knows it's it's hard to conjecture but it's pretty clear there's a lot of stakeholders there's a lot of alignment you'll see on the internet, you'll see doctors who say, listen, everybody, every patient in their waiting room has to be vaccinated. And you'll see vitriol, you'll see families that say, oh, the grandparents can't see the grandkids unless the grandkids get vaccinated. Whatever it is, the vaccine is a mechanism. It's a social weapon. It's The vaccine has been something to be weaponized where people use it against each other. Family members using it against each other. Doctors using it against their patients. The government using it against um, others. The interesting thing about it, at least in the United States, is you know the stakeholders: Center for Disease Control, NIH, and FDA. They're not taking the vaccine. Um, uh, another example: you know, nine percent of U.S. universities are mandating the vaccine. Just nine percent. People think it's a ton, but it's just nine percent. But it, of interest, most of those universities have not even written a policy, nor do they have a fair exemption process. And on top of that, many of those universities, the professors are not taking the vaccine. So the vaccine has been something that's been weaponized against people. And and you have to beg the question, You know, technically I can tell you what that legally is. If an organization is sending out threatening emails saying that you have to have the vaccine without a policy, you know what that is? That's harassment. Yeah. That's harassment. Legally, that's harassment. I can give you an example of what's going on right now in Texas. In Texas, it's gotten so bad, early in April, we had an executive order by Governor Abbott that said that, that uh, one cannot even ask your vaccine status. They cannot uh, discriminate based on vaccine status. You can't lose your job over it, and you can't be discriminated. I know for a fact that the applications to the Texas medical schools right now have a checkbox asking if you've been vaccinated or not. And so right now they're already violating Texas law. So you know what we really need right now? We don't have enough of them. We need courageous lawyers. I mean, you and I have been out there courageously taking media and scientific medical steps based on solid science and our opinions. We need courageous attorneys now to step up and say, wait a minute, where's the courage here? we got an executive order that says don't do that, and we have state institutions that are breaking the executive order. We almost have lawlessness here. If our institutions are willing to break the law, why wouldn't citizens be willing to say, forget it, I'm not taking a PCR at the border, I'm out of here. Or I'm not going to stay in a government-mandated hotel, I'm out of here. No one seems to be following the law anyway. It's like, who's bigger and tougher?
0: Yeah, and it's, that's an interesting point. And I know here in British Columbia, the Law Society has really encouraged, um, yeah, and, and that's, that's softly put that their, uh, law or uh, the lawyers within that organization follow the government edict to the, to the word. And it's even very difficult to find a lawyer that would represent you uh, to push back against these measures. So, you know, the, it's not only the doctors that have been corralled into uh, doing the government's bidding, it's also the lawyers. So, you, you know, as you say, it would be great to see some more courageous uh, law professionals um, push back against this because with, without them, you know, the, the average person isn't going to be able to fight the government on this.
1: Well, I tell you, we need them and there's very few of them, but let me give you some examples. We do have the um, student body of Indiana University who is uh, taking to court the the illegality of the uh, Indiana University vaccine mandate. And that's uh, Mr. Jim Bopp, who's a very senior attorney. He's an IU alumni. He was on Tucker Carlson uh, last week. We do have the Houston Methodist case where Houston Methodist Hospital in Texas, again, Texas is a state that the state actually itself prohibits vaccine um, discrimination. Houston Methodist has fired workers who don't, won't take the vaccine and they fired, uh, let's say two, roughly 200 workers. 90% are women of childbearing age or pregnant who can't take the vaccine anyway. Many are COVID recovered. They can't take the vaccine or have allergies. So the people not taking the vaccine can't take it medically and now they've been fired. So they're being sued. That case was lost at the lower court level with a very brief decision. And now it's gonna move to appellate and hopefully the Supreme Court. We've got demand letters into the CDC, legal letters uh, demanding that the CDC recognize natural immunity and not just vaccine immunity. We have citizen petition letters into the US FDA from the Nurses and Doctors Association um uh strongly encouraging non approval non full fda approval of the vaccines and the evidence based consulting group in london which is the principal uh, consulting group for the who has a report into the mhra in england to remove the vaccines from the market that they're not safe for human use so i can tell you right now we are doing everything on our side that we possibly can we are doing everything i get distress uh emails every day and what I tell people is that, listen, we're doing everything we can. Let's see some other people step up. Um, we need um, citizens in America and Canada to pepper their legislative leaders' inboxes every day uh, to drop them any support for the vaccine whatsoever. Vaccines should be either off the market or completely elective. I don't wanna hear another word about it in the media. Uh, absolutely positively no mandates, no linkage to travel, stop all the lockdowns, open up the borders. None of it's supported. And, and it's gonna be the will of the people. It's gonna be the will of the people. There is an illeg- illegality going on at the level of government right now. And if people wanna sit around and think they have to be uh, taking a PCR test at the border, that's not legal, uh, and then be roughed up all the way through their stay, that we have to step up and have some spine and and kick some butt and, and we just have to do it. I'm sorry, because otherwise, you know what? People are gonna find a workaround here and they're not gonna put up with this. And it's the will of the people Things were pretty reasonable two years ago, and they're not reasonable now. and People are angry. Yeah. yeah.
0: And, and I think, you know, in Canada, at least, it seems that one of the uh, reasons that the government is pushing for these vaccine passports is that it, it likely will be a transition into a CCP-style social credit system. Uh, there's a number of uh, papers circulating around in Canada right now that, uh, you know, may or may not have come from the government that uh, are, are speaking up to this subject that, you know, vaccine passports are the, the, the beginnings of what could become a full-blown social credit system. And, uh, you know, I don't think anybody in a free country wants anything to do with that whatsoever.
1: Well, why do they need to inject something in your body to have a social credit system? You already have your uh, Canadian passports. You already have your... Um... You know, your provincial health numbers, we're already tracked. We can be tracked on our cell phone. I don't believe that we have to inject something in our body to have it linked to social credit system. So I think there's something more behind the vaccines than just that. Mm,
0: Okay. And uh, Dr. McCullough, of course, this uh, interview wouldn't be complete if we didn't discuss your uh, published and highly effective uh, early treatment protocols. Would you like to uh, run through those for us, please? Yeah, let me do a run through
1: for everybody and then I'm gonna to have to get off, um, but this sure. is really important. The current sure. the, the current state-of-the-art protocol published in the December 2020 issue of Reviews in Cardiovascular Medicine, peer reviewed, it's in the National Library of Medicine, this is the standard. All other protocols are subsets of this protocol. All their sub All the protocols are for less severe or stylized cases, but the master protocol is as follows. Age under 50, COVID-19, isolate at home, open up the windows, get fresh air, sterilize the surfaces, and just take nutraceuticals until you clear the symptoms. The nutraceutical bundle is as follows. Zinc, 50 milligrams a day of elemental zinc. Vitamin D3, 5,000 international units. Vitamin C, 5,000 milligrams. And quercetin, or quercetin, a, a supplement, 500 milligrams twice a day. Now that for a typical young person, that may be five days, maybe 10 days, serve out quarantine, done, go back to work. No testing needed. By the way, at my hospital, I personally had COVID-19. I never had to be tested to return to work. That's a complete waste of time. Just once symptoms are resolved, go back to work. Age over 50, or medical problems, or a young person presenting with severe symptoms, in America, we would actually use, send them to an urgent care or ER and we'd give them an infusion of a monoclonal antibody. The current product we have is by Regeneron. That's exactly what President Trump received. The monoclonal antibodies work fine. We like to do it as early as possible in the sequence. Uh, one hour infusion, one hour observation is paid by the government, go home. After that, we use what's called sequence multidrug therapy. Either hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin plus doxycycline or azithromycin outside the United States, favipiravir versus with doxy or azithro. We then use uh, a, a budesonide, uh, 800 milligrams twice a day, all the way through. Day five or pulmonary symptoms, we use prednisone. Uh, we use colchicine all the way through, as shown from the Canadian investigators. And then we get down to lower aspirin of anticoagulants. We use aspirin 325 all the way through high-risk patients. We had low-vinox injections 80 twice a day. We use oxygen concentrators for the seniors at home to make sure they have enough oxygen, and we can get virtually everybody through the illness. I've treated people in their 90s. We get them through the illness. We can avoid the hospital. Nobody wants to be in the hospital. It's a tortured test to be in the hospital, and we stay at home. We get people through the illness. Now, the average person our age, Michael, 10 days of treatment, okay? Seniors, People over 80 expect 30 days of treatment, so we have to be patient with this. Don't go two days and stop. And even though it always starts out mild, it always starts out mild. The key thing is, is treat it when it's mild. Don't wait for it to be severe. There's so many people saying, "Well, I, 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 you know, it wasn't too bad, so I didn't do anything. Now I'm five days into it and I can't breathe. It's like, gosh, you know, I wish you would have called me right away. Treat it when it's mild, and you can make it mild." You know, I've been on TV a couple of times with Sebastian Gorka and he was with President Trump's uh, team. And he said that in December, he got some mild symptoms. He took hydroxychloroquine plus the other drugs in sequence. And he literally had this thing snuffed out in five days. He goes, it was the mildest thing. People watch President Trump, he's over 70, he's obese. And uh, he got the, uh, the, um, the Regeneron product infusion, got the other drugs. He breathed through it in about seven days. It gave him a little oxygen and didn't even need it, but he was back at work right away. So what President Trump had should serve as an example to the Canadian American people of getting early treatment and just avoiding all the disaster of being in the hospital. And people shouldn't push the panic button uh, to go to the hospital unless you really need to do it. A hospital doesn't offer anything that we can't do at home outside of mechanical ventilation.
0: Uh, and then, so did President Trump receive the uh, uh, HCQ or ivermectin? Do we know that? Or is it was it uh, just the monoclonal uh, antibody? Treatment?
1: I don't know the details of the oral drugs. I know they did feature the monoclonal antibody. I was told he received other oral drugs, but I never found out the details.
0: Excellent, excellent. Well, sir, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, if listeners would like to learn more about you and your work, where would I direct them?
1: I have them go to America Out Loud, the McCullough Report, That's a great place to go for resources. That's a podcast that comes out every week. There are important posts through that. Um, It's wonderful and there's some also related. It sounds like a lot of your listeners are interested in this issue of social injustice and freedom. And um, I can tell you um, uh, America Out Loud Radio is just as a major theme. Uh, Another show to watch there is uh, Dr. Lee for America, uh, which is really a lot about the social injustice. For the hardcore medical aspects of things, uh, including the protocols, the list of treating doctors, go to the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, aapsonline.org, to get the treatment protocols, to get the telemedicine services. Um, I can tell you a frequent email I get, and I've got a bunch of emails when I've been on with you, are from Canadians. They're asking how can they get treatment, and you know what I tell every Canadian? I said, go call your doctor and pound them for treatment. Every doctor needs to get hundreds of calls today from patients saying, I want treatment for COVID-19 and be ready. Because if the doctors don't get pounded, they're not gonna respond. Everyone's going for a quick workaround. And instead we've got to force the will of the people on the doctors, on the healthcare systems, on your uh, members of parliament and your other leaders to get things on track. You know, the people are becoming far too docile You know, they are somewhat docile in the United States and they're terrible in Canada. Terrible, too docile. Canadians need to step up. Let's see those Canadian hockey players. Let's see those Mounties get up there and kick some butt and have you guys get back.
0: Yeah, well, you know, the, you are aware, of of course, that ivermectin and HCQ in Canada are substances which the average person and average doctor simply have no access to. So, uh, that's a difficult task up here. I know that some people have resulted uh, or resorted to, uh, veterinarian grade ivermectin because, of course, you can buy that at your agricultural feed. Uh, and supply store without a prescription. But uh, it's a a strange situation up here. And certainly, I agree with you 100% that uh, Canadians have been far too docile and compliant through this whole process, Uh, uh, essentially like sheeps being led to the slaughter. And that needs to stop or uh, it's just going to get worse and worse up here.
1: Every Canadian with a computer ought to be flooding their uh, members of parliament and their local leaders with demands for early treatment and, uh, and and having them back down on any t- anything related to the investigational vaccines, drop support for the investigation. There ought to be thousands and thousands of messages going in. I can tell you it's happening in the United States, it's really frustrating me. I get so many uh, desperate emails from parents saying, they're gonna force the dangerous vaccine on my child to go to university, can you help me? And I'll ask the parent, what have you done? Have you called a board of directors? Have you done a comment box? Have you done an anonymous? Uh, anything. They say, no, I haven't done anything. I said, you've done nothing and you want me to kind of drop what I'm doing to help you? I mean, come on. I mean, people have to pick it up. Same thing when Canadians ask me, how can I get ivermectin hydroxychloroquine? I said, what have you done? Have you asked for it? Have you pounded your doctors? Have you left comments at the local pharmacy? You you know, if people don't start doing something, they can't rely on a few heroes like me and you to do everything for them. We got to activate the people here.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a great way to uh, to end today. And and once again, you know, thank you for everything that you've done. And uh, you know, you're you will uh, be remembered as a, as a shining star in this whole process. And uh, I'm glad that we have folks like you uh, leading the charge.
1: Okay, same here, Mike. Thanks a lot.
0: Thank you, sir. You have a great day. And uh, next time I'm down your way, I'll give you a buzz. Maybe we can do uh, dinner or uh, a lunch.
1: I'll take you out for a Texas steak. No lockdowns, no masks. Let's go.
0: Fantastic. Right. Thanks so much, sir. Have a great day. All right. Bye bye.